0: we're going to read from Luke chapter 12, verses 13 to 34. If you've got one of the church Bibles, this is on page 871. Luke chapter 12, verse 13. Someone in the crowd said to him, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, man, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? And he said to them, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of one's possessions. And he told them a parable saying, the land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones and there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. And he said to his disciples, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, nor about your body, what you will put on, for life is more than food and the body more than clothing. Consider the ravens, they neither sow nor reap, they have neither storehouse nor barn, and yet God feeds them. Of how much more value are you than the birds? Sell your possessions, and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail. Where no thief approaches, and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also.
1: Thank you very much for our reading. let me add my welcome. My name is Roger, I'm one of the ministers here. And if I don't know you, um, do please come and say hello afterwards. Um, I'm always pleased to get to know other folk. Um, Just to say, if you are visiting on this Remembrance Sunday, um, our, our normal pattern in, in this church is to, is to work through books, Bibles. We're, oh, like. we're working our way through Luke, and you can certainly hear me now. Um, we're working our way through Luke's gospel. So this passage wasn't particularly chosen for Remembrance Day, but actually, I think it, it's really helpful to be thinking about this today of all days. Remembrance Sunday is a day when we stop, we pause in the busyness. Of life, the noise of life. And we pause to remember some sobering facts. The fact of war in our world, the fact of life and death, of the many men and women who've lost their lives in service of others. And it is sobering, isn't it? It's a sobering perspective. It kind of puts all the other anxieties of life, all the kind of daily stresses and strains, into perspective. Thinking of young soldiers heading to war zones, not knowing if they'll return puts things in perspective. And that sense of putting anxieties into perspective is what Jesus is doing in Luke 12. We saw last week Jesus putting social anxieties into perspective. Why in the grand scheme of things, in the kind of life and death scheme of things, fear of God matters more than fear of people. That was last week. This week, Jesus is putting the material worries of life into perspective, the making ends meet, the paying the bills type of anxiety, putting those anxieties into a much bigger perspective. Life and death, eternity. See, Jesus wants each of us sitting here this morning to pause and remember what matters. Think about the big picture think about the huge realities of life, death, and eternity. And he wants us to do that whether we'd call ourselves a Christian at the moment or not. Striking, actually, in this bit of teaching, if you look at verse 22, if you've still got your Bible open, page 871, verse 22 onwards, Jesus turns to his disciples. So that's some teaching, particularly for Christians, for followers of Jesus. But the first section, verses 13 to 21, is for everyone. It's for the crowd. It's for every person in Morningside. So this morning really is for everyone who's sat here. Let me pray for God's help as we turn to his word. Our Father in heaven, we do pray that you'd help me to be clear and faithful to your word and help all of us to have ears to listen and hearts to trust you. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, right at the heart of our passage this morning, we have a really shocking story Did you notice it? How shocking it actually is. It's the story of Mr. Richman. And there's a hand up, by the way, if you want to know where we're going. And we're starting to think about Mr. Richman. Uh, Mr. A. Richman, let's call him Alexander. In Jesus' story, Alexander Richman was set in an agricultural setting. A rich farm owner, verse 16. He's doing really well. The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And this guys he's a savvy businessman. So he thinks, right, I've I've got growth, I've got profit. Let's use that as an opportunity to expand and invest. So he goes on to tear down his barns, verse 18, and build bigger ones. Now, Jesus was speaking with agricultural imagery in a rural setting. I guess today you might bump into someone like Mr. Richman around here. If you lived in Edinburgh... I guess he might be an EH9. Maybe he did really well in a professional career. He made more than enough to live on. And so he began to invest it. He bought some property on the side and rental income went up. The value of those assets went up. So he sold a few of them and bought bigger. More flats, bigger flats. He looks set for life. And so it is. One evening he gets into his expensive electric SUV relaxes into its heated leather seats as the cool air conditioning brushes across his face. And he hears the expensive stereo just fading up nicely as he begins to drive. And that night, he says to himself, you've made it. Alex, you've done it. Get ready for the good life. It's time for the holidays, the golf course, the vintage wines, the fine dining. Alex, you've made it. Then to his surprise, he hears God say something back, Alex, you fool. Time's up. That night, Mr. A. Richman had a heart attack and meets his maker face to face. That's the story Jesus tells, that's the basic shape of it, and it is shocking I mean, lots of the stories Jesus tells pack a punch, but I think this is one of the bluntest. In the space of five verses, Mr. Richman gets renamed Mr. Foolish. And we need to get our heads around this, because I reckon if we did meet Alexander Richman around here, we'd probably be pretty impressed by him, pretty admiring of him, maybe even slightly envious of him. Aspire to be him, perhaps. But Jesus calls him Mr. Foolish. So the question is, what did he get wrong? What was so foolish about his approach to life? And let me make absolutely clear from the start, it was not that he did anything illegal or unethical. There's no mention in the story that Jesus tells that he treated his workers badly on the farm or he cheated his customers. He's just a wealthy, savvy businessman, just running a successful business, planning for a very comfortable retirement. So why does Jesus call him a fool? Well, the basic answer is our first point. There's more to life than accumulating wealth. We're going to have three points today. That's the first one and the longest. Don't be a fool. There's more to life than accumulating wealth. Now, I'm getting that point straight from verse 15, if you can see it. Jesus said, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of one's possessions. There it is, Jesus saying it. There's more to life than accumulating wealth. Now, why is Jesus saying that right here at this moment? Well, just before we get to the shocking story of Mr. Richman, we need to see the scene that Jesus sets up in verse 13, or rather comes to Jesus in verse 13. There's a question from the crowd. Uh, Not actually a question, it's more of an instruction. Hey, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Now, there's that old joke, Do you know, where there's a will, there's a lawsuit. And it seems back then that the same was true, that that there was a family division around who should get a cut of the inheritance. And this guy, I guess he's a younger brother, wanting his older brother to include him, he spotted Jesus as a kind of passing rabbi who might be able to help. Hey teacher, sort out my brother, will you? I mean, I want a cut of the money. Jesus isn't willing to play ball. Man, who appointed me a judge or an arbiter between you? Or in other words, look, mister, who do you think I am? Some kind of local magistrate. Seems like this guy has no idea who he's talking to. His head is so tied up with his inheritance claim. He's so focused on his finances. He's he's missed the identity of Jesus entirely. Of course, the irony is we heard last week Jesus described himself as the Son of Man, which is a title for God's appointed judge of every human being, every human life. He's not just a local civil magistrate. A few weeks ago, Jesus described himself as a king greater than King Solomon. And he's shown evidence to back that up. And despite all of that, this guy walks up to the king and judge of the world and orders him... To sort out his personal finances. So focused on his finance, he's missed who Jesus is. And actually, Jesus says he's missed the point of life itself. And so he turns to the crowd listening in, to us listening in this morning, and says, watch out, be on your guard against all kinds of greed. A man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Jesus is saying, that guy in the crowd is a walking demonstration of how to miss the point of life. He's blinded by his Barclay card. thinks that's what it's all about. It's a stern warning, actually. Jesus says, watch out. It's the same language as he had at the start of the chapter. Watch out about hypocrisy. Start of chapter 12. And he, now he's saying, watch out for greed. It's as dangerous as that. Hip, religious hypocrisy, just going to church and ticking some boxes, can blind us to the need of forgiveness. And greed, material greed, coveting what others have, can blind us to the point of life. Some of us will have seen in, in friends or family or colleagues how greed really can destroy a life or a family, relationships. But Jesus isn't so much saying greed is bad, kind of moralism. No, he's saying greed can blind It causes us to miss what really matters in life. And actually, when you remember where Jesus is heading at this point of Luke's gospel, I think it becomes even more stark. Jesus has just set off to Jerusalem to die on the cross, to open the doors to God's eternal kingdom, to offer forgiveness for anyone who would trust him. And just at that moment, at that kind of momentous climax of God's rescue plan, when Jesus is about to sacrifice himself to save others eternally, a far bigger sacrifice, even than the greatest wartime sacrifice. At that moment, when eternal forgiveness is off, in off, on offer, some guy wanders up with his briefcase of legal papers and says, Any chance you could help me with my brother? I want the money he's utterly missed the point. It's like stopping Russell Wilson in the Murrayfield Tunnel on Saturday, about to face the world champion South Africa and saying, any chance you want to play catch with me? But the power of greed, however rich or poor we are actually, whether we're Christian or not, that pull to possess more, it can engross us, fill our thoughts. Daily anxieties about finances I know how easy myself, it's easy to worry more about finance than about listening to Jesus. Jesus says, watch out. Greed has such power you could be standing before the king of the universe but have your mind on your mortgage. People do that in churches. That's the scene, there's more to life than accumulating money. And Jesus knows, because we breathe in the kind of materially driven, acquisitive consumer culture, we breathe it in all the time. So we need more help to kind of wake us up out of this. And so to ram home that point, he then tells the shocking story of Mr. Richman. Let's just look at what Mr. Richman's problem actually was. Why was he so foolish? Um, Well, uh, verse 16, the land of a rich man produced plentifully. Verse 17, he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I'll tear down my barns and build larger ones. There I'll store all my grain and my goods. And I'll say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. I wonder if you noticed the repeated refrain, I, 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 I. It's all about himself, his plans for his crops, in his barns, for his future which many in our culture would say, well, hang on, what's wrong with that? I mean, you've got to look after number one. He earned it. He should enjoy it. But God says, you fool. Why is it so foolish? Well, Mr. Richman is living for wealth and living for self. And to do that is to forget the two most basic things in life. You might be thinking death and taxes. Actually, the Panama Papers have shown that if you're rich enough and you've got offshore contacts, you can get out of taxes. So it's not that. Death and God. That's what he forgot. Forgot to factor in. Firstly, death. Look at verse 19. I'll say to myself, you have plenty of good things laid up for many years. In Mr. Richman's view of the world, life's going to carry on uninterrupted. It's just ticking along. Plenty of years left to enjoy the good life. He's living like he's immortal. He's forgetting death. And that is foolish because despite all his business acumen, actually death is the most obvious fact in the universe. No, it's not cheery to think about. But if we're going to live smartly, we need to remember. Not just remember war, remember the death of others. It's absolutely right to do that. But actually to remember our own mortality too. It is an unshakable certainty. Unless Jesus comes back beforehand, every one of us in the room is going to die. And what does death do to money? Well, redistribution. It takes all the things we've accumulated into our hands and puts them in the hands of others. Verse 20, God makes that point. Just have a look. You fool, this very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you've prepared for yourself? Who will get it? someone else that's the point not you all that effort he put in all the late nights all the hard deals all the clever investments all the stuff he bought the property the gadgets the bank accounts the cars the holiday funds it all goes that's why it's foolish to, to devote life to accumulating possessions it's to pour energy into a project that will inevitably fail you just can't hold on to a single penny we might object. Well, hang on, hang on. Surely Jesus' story is just a case of really unlucky timing. I mean, yeah, Mr. Richman didn't get to enjoy his wealth, but but I might. I mean, I might live to a ripe old age. Plenty of holidays and meals at great restaurants. Maybe I'll take the risk. Actually, Richman didn't just forget death. Even more seriously, Mr. Richman forgot God. And by that I mean, Mr. Richman, there's no signs he was aggressively anti-God, hostile to religious things, wasn't necessarily an atheist, might have even come to church. I'm sure he was a great man to know. But when it came to running his life, he gave God no attention. All those eyes, my barns, my grains, my goods, I'll say to myself, who needs God when you've got MasterCard? It's actually easy, even as Christians, to sometimes think along these lines. It can be all-consuming, the kind of how do I pay the bills, how do I get the the money I need, no time left to think. I remember being told at school um, by a chairman of an oil company, actually, a prize day, I remember being told, life is what we make it, we can achieve anything with a bit of hard work. I'm sure that's a good encouragement to to work hard. But actually, on reflection, actually the most important things of life I can't do anything about. I didn't choose where I was born. I didn't put any work into that. Someone did, but it wasn't me. And God decides when I take my last breath. We're not actually self-sufficient. Our lives are gifts from a creator. They're on loan from him. And like any creditor, there will come a time, verse 20, when the loan's called in this very night your life will be demanded from you. And you can kind of imagine Mr. Richman's shock, can't you? The kind of, God, ah, I'm sorry, I hadn't really, I hadn't really factored you in. I, I remember hearing some nice stories at Sunday school, but I didn't really think you were that um, relevant. I mean, I, 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 I always planned to sort things out with you, you know, later, once I'd enjoyed retirement. You You fool. I think one of the things that makes this man's story so tragic is that he wasn't unthinking. He wasn't living recklessly for the moment. He was trying to plan for the future, store things up. It's just his perspective on the future was so short-sighted. He banked on the total uncertainty of the good life rather than the absolute certainty of meeting his maker. And then finally, on this first point, the sting of Jesus' story comes in verse 21. This is how it will be with anyone who stores up things for himself but is not rich towards God. We're going to think about what being rich towards God might mean later. But notice just how inclusive that warning is in verse 21. Anyone. So Mr. Richman, it's not that he's a particularly unlucky guy or a hypothetical fairy story. No, this is a a warning to anyone. Not that we'll all drop dead the day we take early retirement, but sooner or later, every person will stand before God. And so lovingly, Jesus says to all of us in the crowd, wise up, don't be a fool, there's more to life than accumulating wealth. Perhaps we might say, well, surely I can leave my money to my children. Like, isn't it good to provide for them? Well, yes, the Bible does encourage us to plan wisely for the future, to provide financially for our family. But of course, even their money will pass into another's hands. Even the next generation will die, will face God. And the most important thing remains to help them prepare for that. That's the most important legacy to lead. You see, at the gates of God's banquet, there's no asset count, no assessment of net worth. The only thing that will matter is, what have you done with Jesus? Which meant the only thing Mr. Richman took beyond the grave was regret. Perhaps you're thinking, well, if you're not a Christian, you may be thinking, well, hang on, this is all just based on the scare story, that there's going to be some great reckoning in the future, that Jesus is going to come back and judge. Well, if that's your issue, please come back next week, because that's what next week is all about. And there is some evidence Jesus rose from the dead. Historically recorded. But for now, let's get on to our second point. And actually, it's time now to to think how that story should change the perspective, even of Christians. The remainder of the passage is particularly for us as disciples of Jesus to change our perspective. And the point is this don't be anxious about money. Don't be anxious about money because God knows what his children need and provides. This is actually a wonderfully reassuring section of teaching from Jesus. Last week we thought how Jesus knows and values his children so much that he knows the hairs on our head. That is more than I love and know my son Josh. But here in verses 22 to 30, he expands that thought of how much our Heavenly Father loves us and cares for us. And he does it to reassure us in the anxieties of life, particularly material anxieties. Let me read verse 22. Jesus said to his disciples, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, nor about your body, what you will put on, for life is more than food and the body more than clothing. There's the big point we've already seen again. There's more to life than stuff. And I think if you think back to the original context, you can understand why these disciples might have been really anxious about how they were going to provide for themselves and their families. We've been thinking about how opposition to Jesus is heating up at this point in Luke's Gospel. Uh, Lots of opposition in chapter 11. And Jesus in chapter 12 so far has been saying you still need to stand up, be public as a Christian, speak of him. And they might well be thinking if I do that, it's going to cost me. I might well lose out financially. The promotion might not come. I might even lose my job or not get the job. If I admit I'm a Christian and I believe the Bible and I'm kind of with Jesus, well, I might suffer financially and then who's going to pay the bills? Even this week, actually, I was speaking with a Christian in this church family who had at work mentioned something about heaven and hell. They'd been asked about it, and it was an honest response to an honest question. And then subsequently, they were reported by a colleague to their superior and had to answer for it. Easy to be worried, isn't it, about that kind of thing. If we stand up for Jesus publicly, well, maybe the the social and political opposition will leave us with no means to pay the bills. Definitely true for Jesus' disciples here. They did get thrown out of synagogues for speaking of him. True for brothers and sisters across the globe. A number of our global partners would speak of that amongst those they serve amongst. And beginning to be true here in Scotland. We're beginning to feel that pressure, I think. And in all of that context, Jesus says, your heavenly Father can be trusted to provide. Don't be anxious. Where does he point us? Well, verse 24, look at the birds. So unlike Mr. Richman, they have no great farming business. They don't have barn storing strategies, but God feeds them of how much more value are you than the birds? We thought in chapter 11 about praying for our daily bread. And Jesus gave us the reassurance our Heavenly Father knows how to give good gifts, wants to give good gifts, to provide Verse 27 Think of the plants. Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell them, even Solomon, in all his glory, was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass, which is alive in the field today and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? The point is clear, isn't it? If God, the Creator, can provide so richly for minor aspects of His creation, Of course, he will look after his children. It might take different forms. It might be you get a job just when it's really needed, when things are getting desperate. It might be, and we've seen some answers to prayer on that front in this church family. It might be that actually other believers help provide through a difficult time. And again, that does and will continue to happen in this church family. There's more than one way in which the Lord provides. But this is a straight-up promise. Our Father can be trusted with the finances. And of course, verse 25, anxiety doesn't actually help, does it? Which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? If then you're not able to do a smaller thing as that, why are you anxious about the rest? I mean, as a worrier myself, I can testify. I've done a lot of worrying, and it hasn't hasn't helped at all. Just a waste of energy. We're not self-sufficient but the Lord is sufficient, our heavenly Father. And so verse 29, Jesus says, don't get caught up in the chase to grab what we can while we can. Verse 29, do not seek what you are to eat and what you are to drink, nor be worried, for all the nations of the world seek after these things, and your Father knows that you need them. I love that final phrase. This is a precious passage to me. I come back to it a lot because I need it a lot often worrying. And I love that final phrase, your father knows that you need them. That is, God is realistic. Like He knows we need food and clothes and shelter. Jesus here is not arguing for some monastic existence, some kind of shunning of God's gifts of food and clothes and homes, to be ascetic. He's not saying that. These are a blessing in God's creation. He's just saying, don't live for that. Notice too, he is talking about needs here. Not wants or desires. This is necessity, not luxury. It's adequacy, not excess. I think that would be a really good question for every Christian here to think about and to to chat with others about. To, To ask the question does having what we need really describe our current approach to material things? Because, of course, as verse 30 says, The entire stream of culture around us and society is chasing after these things. There are lots of Alexander Richmonds around. It can be tempting to think that keeping up is normal and indeed sensible. Actually, Jesus says, no, it's not. It's more to life than wealth. That's not what life is about. Let me say, for those amongst us for whom money is really tight, I realize it's a lot easier said than done. Ministry life can be like that. Sometimes um, finances are tight, or there can be financial scares. Often I've had to come to this passage and pray for God's help to trust Jesus' words here. Actually, I think at any point in the spectrum of how much wealth you have, it's possible to be anxious about finances, to to find our minds and our, our hearts and our worries kind of focused on that. If you are in that position, you want something concrete to do, a really great thing to do would be to pray the Lord's Prayer. The Lord's Prayer does ask for help, give us our daily bread, our daily needs. It also reorientates us. Your kingdom come, your will be done. But for many of us, we are a long way from the bread line. We have more than we need, realistically. Like Mr. Richman, actually, he had more than he needed. And so face the choice, what shall I do? And that gets us to our third point, because Jesus doesn't just tell us what not to do, don't be a fool, don't be anxious, but positively, what to do. Proactively, what should we do with our wealth? Or in other words, verse 21, what does it mean to be rich towards God? So finally then, our final point, more briefly. Instead of anxiety or chasing wealth, do seek God's kingdom, using wealth to get people there. Do seek God's kingdom, using wealth to get people there. I'll read from verse 31. Instead, seek his kingdom, and these things will be added to you. Fear not, little flock. I love that language. Fear not, little flock, for it's your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions, give to the needy, provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Jesus' remedy for financial anxiety is to seek the kingdom first and trust God for the rest. To have as a priority both that I would keep trusting Jesus, and my family would keep trusting Jesus, and that others would hear about the opportunity to trust Jesus, God's king for eternity. The wonderful reassurance is that if we devote our lives to that project, or rather than the kind of wealth hoarding being a kind of doomed enterprise, well, verse 32, this is bound to work. Fear not, little flock, it's your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. We're chasing something that, that locks in with God's will. What does that mean? Well, we've already seen in Luke things like praying, your kingdom come. Speaking, I'm with the king, Jesus. But actually here, I really do think the particular focus is on seeking the kingdom in our finances. That is, actively investing our wealth in what is eternal, rather than storing it up or spending it on ourselves here and now. Or in other words, really simply, just don't live like Mr. Richman. Don't live for wealth and self. Instead, pour out our resources in prioritization of God's kingdom. I actually think to our ears, some of what Jesus suggests here is quite shocking. We might expect Jesus to say, okay, in light of all of that, think about Mr. Richman, just don't go too crazy. Like, maybe draw a line and don't keep adding, adding, adding. But he doesn't say that. He says travel in the opposite direction. Do you notice that? Verse 33, sell your possessions and give to the needy. Or in other words, be downwardly mobile, not just holding steady. Extraordinary. I don't think that's a command to say that Christians should never own anything. We see elsewhere in the New Testament, believers who do have houses, other resources, use them greatly for the gospel. And we see the same today. Again, it's not saying turn yourself into a hermit, an ascetic. But even if Jesus isn't saying sell everything, I wonder if we get stuck on the idea of selling anything. I mean, why would you do that? Why would you liquidize an asset? Something solid, solid. Why would you sell possessions to give? It's really radical. Actually, Jesus gives us reasons to show why it's not crazy. Just look at them. He he thinks it's the best way to invest. Verse 33. This is to provide a treasure that can't be destroyed or taken away. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. I'm now old enough that some of my best jumpers have moth holes in them. It's a real blow, to be honest. I've had a few bikes stolen. And you know what? Looking back, the thing I'm most glad about is I didn't spend more on the jumper or the bike. Whereas money put towards God's kingdom, that is helping people hear the message of Jesus, whether it's in this country, in this local area, this church, or across the globe, it is making an investment that cannot be taken away. We're going to think more about this as we go through um, the journey with Jesus. Because in Luke 16, Jesus tells the story of the shrewd manager, a guy who uses his wealth now to build relationships that will last. And Jesus' punchline is this listen to this. I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of worldly wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into eternal dwellings. That is, Jesus is saying there, there is a direct que- connection. Between money going to gospel ministry, people hearing about Jesus, and then being friends with them for eternity. The joy of seeing that something I put money behind actually led to someone being saved for eternity. That's what Jesus is talking about. Just think about it. We heard from the Brash family at the prayer meeting. They're able to be in Japan They're speaking to people about Jesus helping with a church plant in a largely unreached culture, training um, church leaders who will then um, multiply the, the gospel going out. They're able to be there because people over here are giving wealth towards it rather than storing it up. The same with us as a church family. We're able to reach out more with the gospel, um, with, a, with a, a team of Bible teachers equipping us all um, to share the gospel. We're training a number of people. We heard about Amy this morning. Uh, We've got uh, apprentices. We've got the ministers in training. Many of them will go on to be lifelong gospel workers. And we pray, spread the, the news of Jesus far and wide. All of those voluntary training roles cost money. People give money towards that. And we will know the joy, the unlosable joy, of seeing eternal fruit from those financial investments. Jesus says, provide yourself with money bags that do not grow old. That's the first reason. It's just a great investment. Um, uh, but the second reason, this is what we'll close on. The second reason, I think, is even more surprising. second reason is that our hearts go where our money does, which is actually entirely the other way around from what you expect Jesus to say. You kind of expect Jesus to say, okay, get your hearts in the right place, orientate your hearts towards God's kingdom, and then the giving will follow. But in verse 34, Jesus says precisely the opposite. Just have a look. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And Actually, that's undeniable. If we pile up our money here and now, uh, our hearts start to, to kind of focus on that. How am I going to manage that? How am I going to protect it? How am I going to make sure it doesn't uh, lose its value or get stolen or whatever? It draws our hearts there. Whereas if I'm giving towards gospel work, whether it's providing resources to needy people, to brothers and sisters who actually aren't able to provide at the moment, or to gospel work, to mission partners, to gospel workers, to the outreach of a local church, as we find our hearts more, as we find our wallets more engaged with those things, our hearts follow. We want to pray, we want to find out how it's going, we want to see the fruit. Let me say as I close, I've seen some wonderfully encouraging examples over the years of this kind of approach. Christians who just aren't living for wealth, they're living for Jesus and for people to hear about him. There's no one-size-fits-all kind of way to do this. I've seen Christians who haven't taken promotions, even though the the money would go right up, so that they can keep having time to be involved in a local church or time to get to know colleagues. Um, there was one guy in the city when I worked there where, where um, he wouldn't be headhunted because in his particular firm, he was helping with a Christian union that had lots of freedom to run gospel events for colleagues. So he just stayed there, even though it meant he plateaued. There are others who, um, who resolved early on in their, in their professional careers um, to be generous in the way they handle their finance. There are different ways to do that. Um, Some decided on a proportion, and they would just always give that proportion. Um, Another actually decided a budget to live on, and he gave everything above that. Actually, I I think that's a particularly wise one because it protects you from any salary kind of dragging you away because actually an increase in salary isn't going to make any difference to his living. It'll make a huge difference to gospel giving. There are lots of ways. I'm not trying to say there's one particular way to do it, but I think it's really good for us all to think... In my financial dealings, am I seeking to hoard or seeking the kingdom? I know that's a challenge for me. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you so much that Jesus speaks truth, sometimes blunt, always loving. And we pray for our hearts that you would help us not to be gripped by anxiety when it comes to financial matters or gripped by the desire to have more, gripped by covetousness. Please instead help us to be open-handed, generous children